All right. Well, hey, church, my name is Shane. I just want to welcome you here. If you're new here, we're so glad to have you. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, I've been serving here for about a year and a half. It's approaching two years, brothers and sisters. You guys have put up with me for two, almost a year and a half, two years now. It's been tough. <laughs> Thanks for that, Elaine. She keeps me humble. Um, Oh, God is good. God is good. Brothers and sisters, we have a lot going on in our church. God is moving. Amen. He is at work. Amen. He's an active God, and he is on the move. We've been in our series in Mark, and we're going to get to finish up. We're in the middle of what's called the Passion Week, and we're working towards Easter. And the Easter being the day that Jesus conquered death, that, that he was resurrected, resurrection day. So we're working our way through there. We are finally finishing up what we call Testy Tuesday, the week before Jesus goes and dies on the cross for our sins. I got a question for you. How many of you have seen this before? Keep calm and carry on. You ever seen that, that uh, bright red? I've seen t-shirts. You ever heard the phrase? Keep calm and carry on. Do you know where it came from? It came from during the era of World War II. It was a phrase that, that was used to encourage the, the Brits to continue on through the war effort and the suffering and sometimes the perseverance that they needed came out of that phrase, keep calm and carry on. Well, just recently, this phrase has made a resurgence. Just recently, I don't know anybody following the news, but King Charles III uh, got diagnosed with cancer. Have you heard this? And the thing about leaders, big world leaders, whether it's our heroes, whether it's celebrities, whether it's heroes, we oftentimes have our eyes fixed on what's going on. If it's a if it's a cancer diagnosis for our leaders, it sends many of our of the the nation really even. And the world begins talking about what it means, what would happen if King Charles passed away. And the phrase that's been coming out of that is, keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. See, we tend to derive a lot of hope out of our leaders, out of people. And when things are going well and when they're healthy, we're feeling good and confident. But when things become questionable... See, big news, because leaders have an impact on how we feel about the present. And when a king is proven to be helpless as the rest of us, it makes us question. And we need phrases like, keep calm and carry on. But it's an entirely different thing when a king lays down or takes the crown, the, his crown off of his head and lays it at the feet of Jesus. It's an entirely different thing, isn't it? And we're going to see today that Jesus is going to quote a, a psalm where David literally lays his crown down at the feet of the Messiah. And so Jesus is going to say, David understood that I was coming, that my kingship was something that was going to define the rest of the world, and that we could look towards the present and the future with a hope, because we have a king that surpasses even just the incredible King David, don't we? Every king known to man should take their crowns off and throw them at the feet of Jesus because he is the king of kings and the Lord of kings, isn't he? 
And so we're going to look at the passage that puts all other kings in their place. Jesus is going to teach us that we have a phrase far even better than keep calm and carry on. Even though our leaders, we have a leader that is eternal. And so we can have a peace in the present and in the future because of who is in charge. Amen. All right. So with that, um, we can truly apply that phrase with confidence that we serve a master that has conquered death himself. Death himself. Jesus, we know, conquered death. You guys remember as he was going to war, as we talk about the good king going to war, what was he going to war against? Satan, sin, and death. Satan, sin, and death. And so the end of this Passion Week that we're studying, he's going to conquer all three of those things. Jesus, now, as we look at this passage in Mark 12, 35 through 37. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark 12, 35 through 37. And Jesus is going to establish himself as Lord over all kings and all time. And so I'd have you read along with me. It's Mark 12, 35. And it says this, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that we would derive an incredible amount of hope and hope about the present and hope about the future out of the, the fact, the reality that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we pray that over our hearts today in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So who is this guy, David? Who is this guy, David, that Jesus is talking about? David here, Christ is the son of David. This is an important aspect. David was a king in Israel's history. In fact, he was the greatest king in Israel's history. He was the celebrated hero. There was a great deal of confidence in who David was. And it was celebrated, and it was prophetic. So there was this prophecy that said, multiple times in the Old Testament that the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is coming to save Israel was going to come from the lineage of David, that he would be a son of David. And so there was a great deal of expectation. David is the greatest historic, historical informing leader in their Hebrew history. They would have looked at him much like we look at leaders in our history today. Can you think of a few? I, usually the first one who comes to mind is George Washington. I saw a couple of people mumble it, but they're afraid. You guys, you can shout out things in this church. I'm not going to throw something at you if you do. Okay. <laughs> so we've got George Washington, guys like Lincoln, Madison, Benjamin Franklin. How about Roosevelt? So several of our presidents. Uh, more in recent history, many people would call Martin Luther King Jr. a hero. Whoever is on that list for you in recent memory, in recent history, we've based a lot of our culture today looking back and reflecting on how we count them as heroes, don't we? And we think about how they've impacted our nation, how they impact culture. 
See, David was prophesied to be the father of the Messiah, and it was a big piece of lineage. It was very important, and it was a point of pride. It was a point of pride. He was their hero. He was their pinnacle. David, the son of David. It was a huge point of pride for them in their history. Even Paul, in his letters, the Apostle Paul later on, made this idea that that the Messiah, that Jesus was the son of David, he made it a big deal, oftentimes introing his epistles, his letters, with the idea that Jesus was the son of David. This is an important aspect that sometimes I think we miss the important nature of what Jesus is going to get at here. Figure of great pride, of great heritage. The one thing all the factions of Jews could agree on, as we've talked about in the last several weeks on Testy Tuesday, we've had a lot of very different political perspectives all coming to test Jesus in the last week or last several months, haven't we, as we've talked about. Can you guys name a few? There was the Pharisees, the Sadducees. You guys remember they were pretty sad, you see. Right? You have scribes, you have religious important people, and they all have these different political agendas. And oftentimes they would infight, and there would be lots of infighting. But you know the one thing that all of them could agree on? David was an amazing king who established for them a nation, the nation of Israel. He was their hero. And then intro Jesus as he's teaching. Where is he teaching? He's teaching at the temple complex. The temple complex, which is the point, the place of highest pride for the Jewish culture, isn't it? It would be like standing in front of uh, the White House today. It would be like standing in front of the White House today. It was a place of great pride. It was a place of greatest pride for the Hebrew people, central to all of their culture and all of their heritage. And Jesus stands up and just kind of casually places himself as the Messiah as a higher importance than David himself. He places himself at a higher importance, a higher value, a greater king than even their greatest historical leader. Jesus casually displays that David places. David himself understood the power of the coming Messiah. He is both the father of the Messiah and the servant to his own son. And so Jesus begins to point out something they all would have claimed, they all would have said, David is this important figure, and we know that the Messiah is coming from David. But then Jesus points out that David himself recognizes how much more important the Messiah is than even their greatest hero in history. So today I want to explore what are seven takeaways from Jesus' messianic claim. Jesus' messianic claim. So Jesus is teaching really about the Messiah. And who is the Messiah? Jesus himself. So he's teaching. He's trying to reveal who he is to us as he's teaching. This is a very big messianic claim, meaning he was saying that I am. Am. And so let's start with that first understanding of what Jesus was saying here. Number one, Jesus saying that before David was, I am. If you guys know in other parts of Scripture, as we talk about the I am statement, I am meaning Yahweh is another way to say it. That is the title, not the title, but the very name of God himself. And so as we go back into that passage, 
And, and Jesus in verse uh, 35 says, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? And then he goes back to a verse in Psalms and he says, the Lord said to my Lord. And these two words are important. And in our English language, we translate them the same. But this word here, Lord, is actually Yahweh, is actually Yahweh. So the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, said to my Lord, and the other word here is Adonai. Okay, so a term that here Jesus is saying that the Lord God said to the Messiah or Adonai, God with us, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet under your feet. And so here, essentially, Jesus is trying to show us that before David was even the great king in history, before all of the great heroes in all of our history, who was? He existed. He predates all of our heroes. Jesus has been and always uh, will be. Jesus has existed before creation. He was at creation. We learn in John before in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God was with God, and the Word was God. And we find out the Word was who? Jesus Himself. And so Jesus predates their greatest hero. And so what can we take away from that? Well, let's talk about it. Number one, leaders are not in authority over Jesus. So worldwide, historical leaders, worldwide leaders, celebrities, can I get an amen on this, are not authorities over Jesus, okay? Politicians are not in authority over Jesus. Can I get an amen? Presidents are not in authority over Jesus, amen? I'm also going to say this, scholars are not in authority over Jesus, amen? Okay, intelligent people, I don't know, I don't run in that crowd, but intelligent people are not leaders, are, are not in authority over, to, over Jesus. So here he's saying that David himself took off his crown and lays it at the feet of the Messiah. He was a far more authoritative figure and will be throughout all history. See, all leaders in history are in subjection to Jesus himself, whether they like it or not, because he is God. This is reminiscent of a passage, John 8, 56 through 58. And it says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. So he's talking about Abraham, another hero of the Hebrew faith, right? Who is Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. Okay, Father Abraham was like the the see the the father over all of of Israel. Again, another hero of the faith or hero of the Hebrews. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, "You are not yet fifty years old." So this is Jesus talking, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." And you know what that I am? Actually, the word there is the very name of God, Yahweh. And so did Jesus claim to be God? And scholars will argue that, but that's pretty clear, amen? Jesus claimed to be God and was God. That was his primary teaching. And then he goes through all of their more bi their bigger historical leaders in his ministry, and he says, all of them pale in comparison to the authority of the Christ. This is good news for us, amen? Because men are flawed. Every leader that you've ever had has been a perfect leader, yes? 
I always find it's interesting when you research and you study history and we look at figures like George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, right? What was, what's the term about Abraham Lincoln? He never told a, oh, you guys know this. He never told a lie. That's garbage. Who has never told a lie? I, I love Abraham Lincoln, but he wasn't a perfect person. He was an imperfect person. George Washington, he never did anything of question. But if you do a little historical research, you'll find out that there were some kind of some shady things early on in his military career. There was some questions about what he did. We have no such thing as a perfect hero in our past, do we? We have no political perfect leader, and that applies today too, yes? Even though many of them position themselves as the perfect leader, we know the leaders are not in authority over Jesus. It is actually vice versa, and that is a big amen for all of us. What you also need to see is there's this beautiful heart. You get the spirit of David. David was, man, he was an adulterer and a murderer, wasn't he? What did he do during his kingship? He killed a guy so he could take his wife. He killed a guy. He murdered. He was by no means a good leader, but one thing that distinguishes David, that makes David great, is that he recognizes that he was not so great, and he tipped his hat. So here's what we need to see from this passage today, that spirit-filled leaders, if you notice there, that passage says that in the, what, Holy Spirit, David himself declares. So David is filled with the Holy Spirit, one of, one of the, the Trinity, and in that moment, he admits and confesses to the idea that he is not in charge, but who is? The Messiah, right? God himself is in charge of all history. So spirit-filled leaders recognize their subordinates. I want you to think about how that applies to the leaders in our life. You want to identify who is a good leader? A spirit-filled leader takes his crown off of his head and lays it at the feet of Jesus. You want to know who to follow? Not an arrogant man, not a prideful man, but someone who's willing to say that God knows so much far and above me. I'm a man in desperate need of Christ. Does that apply to our church lives today? Yeah, there are no perfect men. And with that, would you pray for our elders? It's really hard as church leaders to come together as imperfect men, full of sin, in desperate need of Jesus, and try to pray and discern the will of God together. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? I want you to pray also, and we'll see at the end of this sermon, pray for all leaders that they would come to a recognition that they are not in charge, but instead they're subordinate to Jesus. See, elders are considered and a right view in any leadership, whether you're in a Bible study, whether you go to a, a church anywhere, the uh, operating leadership should confess and readily recognize that they are just under shepherds to the chief shepherd of the flock. Amen? And that's a really important aspect as we see David take the crown off of his head and lay it at the feet of the Messiah. It's very dangerous then as as leaders in anything for us to come, whether you're a business owner, any family leaders, men, Jesus calls you the leaders of the family. There's this perspective that we can see from David that we need to take the crown. As soon as we start calling things ours, have you ever noticed how you get possessive? Where we start calling it my church, my ministry, 
As we start calling it my family, then we get this liberty to start owning it, don't we? And we stop viewing ourselves as subordinate to Jesus, but instead we view ourselves as in charge. Have you ever been there? It's very, very, very important that we recognize that we are just under shepherds, that we are stewards. Stewards, when we call, when we say we're stewards of the church, when we look at the verse that says we are to love one another, and that's how we'll know, that's how the world will know who we follow. There's the sense that we are stewards of one another. We're stewards of one another, and that our master Jesus is the one in charge of how we are to treat one another. Now, I want you to look around just real quick at the church. Go ahead, look at each other. Just have an awkward moment. If you lock eyes with somebody, just lean into it. Did you know there is an aspect that God has gifted every one of you to be some type of leader in some format within our church? And he says that it is your responsibility because you're subordinate to Christ to love one another. We're subordinate to him in that, aren't we? We submit to him in that. So spirit-filled leaders recognize they're subordinate to Jesus. Next, Jesus doesn't submit to history. History submits to Jesus. Have you ever heard anybody say, this is how we've always done it. I've never seen it done differently. So this is how we should do it. It's like, well, wait. No matter what we do, no matter how long, because you can walk in folly for a very long time, can't you? Anybody, amen, you've done that? It took years of walking in folly to see that you were walking in your own way. See, Jesus doesn't submit to history. History submits to Christ, and that includes our scriptural interpretation. It means uh, just because something is old doesn't make it correct. I've oftentimes had people quote old church leaders as high authorities. In fact, if you hear sermons today, it's become quite popular to quote somebody somewhere out of some book that they've written. Have you ever noticed that? There's a danger in that. Do you ever check the sources? If somebody quotes to you, if I quote to you somebody in a sermon and you just take that guy's name for gold because he's some kind of professional, guys, don't do it. Check my sources. Anybody who teaches you to something that's other than or outside of Scripture and the teachings of the apostles should be in question. Amen. And so there is a sense that, that history, how we interpret Scripture, and there, there's, uh, that dictates a lot of us when we study Scripture, how many of you have a primary heroic influence in how you interpret Scripture? I want you to think about this. I'm going to throw out just some schools of thought, right? We, many of us, have Bible teaching heroes. Um, there's celebrity pastor teachers today. Would you agree with that? Historically, um, we know God has given men in church history like Luther. And Luther taught some very good things. By grace, through faith, that's scripture, right? Did Luther ever teach, Martin Luther ever teach some things that maybe weren't in Bible? Yeah, he was an imperfect man, right? Today, we have different schools of thought where we throw out names like Matt Chandler or David Platt or John MacArthur, and we say they were a primary influence. Mark Driscoll, all of these celebrities, they were primary influencers in how we read and engage Scripture. And I want to, I want to, John Piper, any of you heard those names? Okay. They have massively influenced how we interpret Scripture, and I want to give you a caution in that. They're imperfect men. Some of them brought really great things. And I just quoted guys that I read. But you need to be cautious in how because history 
doesn't, or history submits to Jesus. How we interpret things needs to submit to God and his scriptures first. And, and men can be helpful in that pursuit, but we cannot view them as a primary authority. We have to take the crowns off of their heads in our own hearts to interpret rightly the scriptures. Modern thought, would you say that we've built modern thought on a lot of different things throughout history? Have they influenced how we think? Well, let me give you a few events that maybe have changed how we think about life. There was this guy named Darwin, and he introduced something called evolutionary theory. And when he did, that has impacted thought since he introduced that, since he introduced that theory. And so now our philosophy, our science, our, our government, uh, even, even our technology operates in, in the light of these writings that Charles Darwin proposed. Was he a perfect man? No. He had some theories, but those theories have gone on to impact our society at deep, deep levels. Let me tell you another secular guy who has deeply influenced our culture. You guys ever heard of Freud? Modern psychology. They will say he's the father of modern psychology. How we think about the human brain, how we think about existence, is, is that influenced highly by this man? Was he a good man? I'll let you decide. Go ahead and research him. But that's how philosophy today has been developed. See, Jesus doesn't submit to the philosophies of history. Jesus is in, in himself the Messiah, the Christ. Amen? He's our highest authority. So the philosophies of men should always come, no matter where they've come in history. How about defining moments that, has that have caused us to interpret or have changed how we view the world? Anybody ever have a defining moment that has changed the rest of your life? So let's talk about some historical moments in human history. World War II, does that change deeply how we view life today? Anybody before World War II? <laughs> Can you tell us how you thought? <laughs> if, somebody, if there's anybody raising, my, raising their hands, you're very old and I love you. But for those of us who are younger, how about 9-11? Did that change sometimes our perspective on safety today? Anybody travel recently and gone through an airport? You know, that changed pretty significantly after 9-11, didn't it? And it has also changed how we, how we view travel. As we look at civil unrest, as we look at these historically defining moments, we always need to return to the fact that Jesus is the authority on human history. The scriptures are the authority on human history. It's amazing to me how many times that you look and see different people quote different things from history, but it's like they take it out of context and they make it serve their current agenda. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever done that? You ever watched the History Channel? That's garbage. The History Channel purports themselves as history, but uh, that is the most bi biased channel I've ever seen in my life. They present to you bias all the time. See, we need to recognize that people may quote history and that's fine, but we have to return to the teachings of Jesus every single time. That has to be our authority because there is no history presented to you outside of bias and outside of human bias. So Jesus doesn't submit to history. History submits to Jesus. Next, Jesus is beyond borders and cultures. Jesus is beyond borders and cultures. I want you to see here that, that Jesus is dealing with a cultural hero for the Jews. Yes, David. David was their cultural hero. Their cultural hero. 
He defined many and, and through his time and kingship and, and God using him immensely influenced how the Hebrews did life and what they were prideful about and what they did and the feasts and the festivals. All of that really was established by the kingship of David. And so they were deeply influenced culturally by David. But here even David is shown to, to be, and as we know, God is not just the God of the Jews. Amen. He's not just God of the, the Hebrew people, but he's God of all peoples. He's the king of all kings. And so even this would have been a statement to say that, that the Messiah is beyond or superior even to culture. I've had it said to me that Christianity is sometimes perceived as a white man's religion. And that's just not true. Jesus supersedes all cultures, all times, all places. All people are called to leave the culture in which they were born into and to submit to the culture of Christ, to the heavenly culture. We leave the old way and we walk in the new way of Christ. And so there, in a sense, there's all of us should be dying a little bit to ourselves, a little bit to the culture of man, and walking more in the heavenly culture of Christ. Amen? And that applies to us, did you guys know that the call of a Christian is even to die to the American way? If the American way is ever at odds with Jesus' way, which one is superior? Christ's. I might have just offended some people there. The American way must submit to Christ because Jesus is beyond borders. He's beyond cultures. God is not just working in the U.S., Amen. He's working across the world, and so he doesn't look at the U.S. and say, oh man, this is the only godly nation that I can pursue and that I can work in and that I look at. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but more and more nations across the seas and around the world are sending missionaries to us. You know why? Because we've become, and we've walked into what they call in a post-Christian culture, meaning that at one time as a culture, we followed Christ as best we could. But now we walk into a time where the greater majority has walked away from the ways of Christ. Because Jesus is beyond borders. He's beyond cultures. We see that in Romans, or sorry, not in Romans, but in Revelation. Every tribe, every nation, every, every tribe, nation, and tongue is going to be what? At the throne of Christ, praising God at the end of days. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. That applies to all of humanity. So Jesus is beyond borders and cultures. And so Jesus making this statement about the Messiah means that no matter what nation you're in, your leaders, everybody is subordinate to the King Jesus. How many of you have read through this passage and go, huh, that's interesting, I don't know what that means. Like so many times we read through Scripture, but then you see, oh my goodness, the claim that Jesus is making here is pretty significant, isn't it? Next. And this is awesome. So I want to take you then. All of Jesus' enemies will fail. Here's a takeaway for us out of Psalms 110. I just want to read this psalm for you because this is amazing. Psalms 110. So Jesus here is quoting David, a Davidic song. David wrote this song by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Psalms 110 one says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. For us, that's already good news. Amen? Because Jesus' enemies will be taken down. Anything that wars against Christ will fail. Death will 
fail. Sin will fail. The devices of the enemy will fail. But let's keep reading. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So Jesus is going to rule. He is Lord of all. He is supreme over all peoples, nations, tribes, tongues, all of creation. Verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on that day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. He says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in, isn't this cool already? Holy garments. Holy garments. Who are God's people? Applying today that talks about in Revelation that you and I are going to get a white robe. Even though all men are imperfect, we will be given perfection. It will be placed upon us in the white robes. And so we will, all of us, be placed in holy garments if we've trusted and believed in Jesus. Isn't that an amen? This is the work of the Messiah. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. That's also, what does that mean basically for us? Jesus' victory is assured because God has said, it is assured. He has not changed his mind. You are a priest forever over after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a king. He's a priest and he's a prophet. Jesus is a king, a priest, and a prophet. These are the different titles of Christ from the Old Testament. Keep reading in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will, what will he do to all other kings? Shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Now, some of you are maybe picking and choosing which kings you would like to be shattered. But what you need to understand is that all authority one day will recognize the supremacy of Christ. All kings, no matter where, on the day of his wrath. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the what? God's not just worried about one nation. He's, he's overseeing and supreme in all nations. Whether that's Brazil, whether that's the U.S., whether that's Italy or Antarctica, all nations. He will execute judgment, filling them with, man, this is intense, ready? Corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And I, I just... This is an interesting thing to me, but basically what this means is he will drink from the brook by the way, meaning that he is traveling. His work is all over. It is global. It is not just a Riverton movement that we are a part of, but Jesus is working in all areas and in all places. His enemies will be laid underneath his feet. That's Psalms 110.7, and after reading that, we know, listen to this, brothers and sisters, we know that Satan will fail. Can I get an amen? Evil men will fail. Evil governments will fail. Death, where is your sting? Death itself will fail. Sin, where are your chains? We are set free, amen? Decay and entropy, there will be no more. False teachers will not succeed. And there are false teachers today, yes? The church will prevail in the end because of Jesus. No road will delay him. No mountain will exhaust him. No conundrum too complicated for him. No political platitude thwart him. No technology 
will threaten him. No setback discourage him. No information confuse him. Anybody been there? No age will weaken him. Can I get an amen? And no arrogance will trip him. Because that is the king who is Lord of all kings. All of Jesus' enemies will fail. And that is good news for us. That technology piece today, I know many of us, as we think about the threat of things like AI and social media, you need to understand it doesn't matter. They will fail. Hopefully this gives you a high degree of hope for the future. And then, uh, so another teaching here that Jesus is scratching at is something that we hold doctrinally is that Jesus is fully man. This is called the two natures of Christ. If he was both the son of David through lineage, but he is also the Messiah, that makes him fully God and fully man. We call that two natures of God. He was born from the line of David, but yet he was called David's master. David himself called him master outside of time, Adonai. Uh, And then the interesting part about what Jesus then ends in his teaching, and it uses the word the throng, we're very delighted in what Jesus taught. If you see that at the end of the passage there in Mark. And this is important for us. Because liking Jesus' teaching is not the same as following him, amen? There are a lot of people that like a lot of the things that Jesus said, but you can have a delight in what Jesus taught without an acceptance. Um, One book, one author puts it like this. says there's a big difference between being a fan and a follower of Jesus. Today, there's going to be a lot of fans cheering. We're going to gather around our TV screens. And we're going to cheer on two teams from the comfort of our couches. Would you call those fans? Are they on the field? Are they lining up at the line for the football? No, we're watching a group of men on a field. I'm sorry, guys. That's about as much as I can paint it. And it's interesting. I'm going to watch it. I'm excited. But as I'm sitting on the couch, I'm not contributing to that team. As loud as I shout, nothing I'm saying or doing is helping them on the field. Amen? Because I'm a fan. Because I'm a fan. But being a fan of Jesus is very different from being a follower because you can be for Jesus and you can like his teachings from the comfort of your couch and never follow and accept and embrace the lordship that he has for you. Fans of what Jesus will accomplish as long as it overlaps with our desires and our goals. See, fans look for where Jesus will accomplish something they want and they come along and they go rah, rah. But when Jesus challenges them to the core, they go Hey, wait a second. That's the difference between a fan and a follower. Instead of submitting completely to his purposes, we pick and choose the things that we like and that we dislike. I think many of us, and I hear this language sometimes in the church, I'll hear your church needs to do this, as if they were, you know, they're on the outside, they're an armchair, and they're able to look in, but they're not really a part of the church themselves. They'll say, your church needs to do this or that. You ever had an armchair critic? Somebody who's really good at pointing out faults from afar, but not walking in the trenches with you. So they'll say, your church, the church needs to do this or that, or you guys need to do this or that. See, liking Jesus' teaching is not the same as following him. When you become a believer, it says that you inherit a family. And so no longer is it them and and they over there, those who are making decisions. It's now us. We are a family of Christ. Remember that oneness we talked about last week, right? 
your perspective changes. See, the word throng in some of your translations just means that they leaned in. They really liked what Jesus was saying because he was talking about their hero instead of being their hero. So what can we walk away with? I want to give you this as kind of a walk away, something to put in your pocket to walk away with. First Timothy 2, 1 through 3 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Now, I want you to notice that in that First Timothy passage, it doesn't say, the kings that I agree with. Because at the time that this was written, people in charge, the emperors in charge, were raining down persecution on Christians, killing them for being Christian. But yet Paul says, pray for them. Well, do you think it would be harder to pray for a, a king or an emperor that was killing your brothers and sisters? Or would it be harder to pray for maybe that political party that's opposite of yours? You see what I'm saying? Which one would be more difficult? I think many of us today would say, much more difficult to pray for that other guy. But the call is, in prayer and supplications, make intercessions for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So we need to pray. We need to pray for all kings, that they would have the kind of humility that recognizes Jesus as Lord. And then Hebrews 13, 17 through 19, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account, Hebrews 13, 17 through 19. Let them do this with joy. So talking about church leadership, do this with joy and not without groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And here Paul, or the author of Hebrews at least says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. And so there's this idea that leaders are held to a greater account, aren't they? Well, who do we give an account to? Well, who's in charge? Who was David accountable to? Who was Abraham accountable to? Who is our every single leader throughout history accountable to? They're accountable to Jesus. Who is Joe Biden accountable to? Who is Donald Trump accountable to? I'm an equal opportunity offender today. They're all accountable to our Lord, our Messiah. And here, that should give us a great deal of peace. So what do we do? Keep calm and carry on because of Jesus. And don't panic. Jesus is the one who is the master. As we go into this election year, there's going to be opportunity for anxiety, isn't there? Who's in charge? As soon as those thoughts well up in your heart and in your mind, ask that question. Who's in charge? Who's the master? Who's the master? As things get chaotic and people start pointing fingers at one another, who's the master? Who's in charge? So you and I can walk into a, a year like this and, and many others would be fearful, but we can be confident because Jesus will not fail, period. He's, he is the master over leaders, calamity, hard times and good times, stressful moments and fleeting delights. <laughs> so in your small groups, would you approach this with this question? Um, what is the biggest takeaway from Jesus' teaching on himself? What is the biggest takeaway for you personally when Jesus taught about himself as the Messiah? And how does this change my perspective on the past, present, or future? How does this change my perspective on the past, present, or future? 
Brothers and sisters, I'm going to pray for you. And uh, I want to invite you as we pray. Would you consider any fear in your heart? And would you submit that to the kingship of Jesus, knowing confidently you can walk forward? Even if you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, you can walk forward because you know the master. Would you pray that with me? Lord Jesus, I do pray that over our hearts. God, as I look at nations become fearful because their king is diagnosed with cancer, Lord, I pray that, that you would remind us that no matter our earthly leaders, it doesn't matter because you are a heavenly, eternal leader in every day and in every moment. There is nothing that can thwart your will and your design and your plans. And so, God, we submit to them wholeheartedly with joy, knowing the promises that you have, the promises of redemption, the promise that you make us right with you through Jesus and his sacrifice. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, God, that you are victorious over Satan, sin, and death. We say yes and amen to that victory and speak that victory over our hearts. Lord Jesus, would you help us to internalize with confidence the victory that you have obtained because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen.